I'm so glad you're here. So in our passage this week, Peter challenged his readers to submit to governing authorities. Specifically, he challenged them to submit to the Roman emperor and to honor the Roman rules. So I want to ask you a question. Is it ever justifiable to disobey a law? You don't have to speak out loud. You can just think. Is it ever justifiable to to disobey a law? Um, Is it ever okay to protest against government and governing authorities? What would Peter say about civil disobedience? What would Peter say about protesting government? What would Peter say to Martin Luther King? You see, in 1963, Martin Luther King gave the greatest speech he's ever given, right? It was called, I Have a Dream. Probably we associate I Have a Dream with Martin Luther King. He gave this speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., in front of a huge crowd of people. And this speech actually solidified support for the civil rights movement, which then helped to actually change American culture for good. Now, beyond actually preaching the merits of civil rights for all people, King was actually preaching a very biblically-based sermon about injustice. He spoke out against government mandates for the good of the gospel. Most people know, of course, that Martin Luther King was was, um, for racial justice, and he was for nonviolent resistance— He stood for those two things. But what many people don't know was that King also had a deep personal faith in Jesus Christ. He had a personal encounter with the risen Lord. And author Stanley Marsh writes about what happened that moment where King really heard the Lord speak to him. So let me read to you this, this example from his life. He says, in, in, in January 1956... Martin Luther King Jr. returned home around midnight after a long day of organizational meetings. His wife and young daughter were already in bed, and King was eager to join them. But a threatening call, the kind of call he was getting as many as 30 to 40 times a day. It interrupted his attempt to get some much-needed rest. When he tried to go back to bed, he could not shake the menacing voice that kept repeating the hateful words in his head. King got up made a pot of coffee, sat down at his kitchen table. With his head buried in his hands, he cried out to God. There in his kitchen in the middle of the night, when he had come to the end of his strength, King met the living Christ in an experience that would carry him through the remainder of his life. This is what he said. He said, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He said, He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. He promised never to leave me, no, never alone. In the stillness of the Alabama night, the voice of Jesus proved more convincing than the threatening voice of the anonymous caller. The voice of Jesus gave him the courage to press through the tumultuous year of 1956 to the victorious end of the Montgomery bus boycott. More than that, It gave him a vision for ministry that would drive him for the rest of his life. Martin Luther King 
protested. And his protest was good for American society. So today we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look at it first from the context that Peter is speaking into in the first century, and then we're going to look at it in the context of our 2020 culture and see how we actually apply this to the world in which we're living. And what I want us to learn tonight is that um, doing good, I titled this message, Do Good. So I want us to learn that doing good in hard situations brings honor to God and reveals God's grace. Doing good in hard situations brings honor to God and reveals God's grace. We're going to look at this in two parts. The first part in verses 13 through 17. We're going to talk about doing good for God's sake. And then in 18 through 25, we're going to talk about doing good for our sake. So we're going to talk about doing good and what that looks like. Let's dive in. Last week, as we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, if you'll remember, Peter was reminding us that Christians, believers, are like foreigners, exiles, uh, like aliens living in a foreign land. And he was reminding us that in the midst of living in a godless society, we are to live holy lives that honor Christ. Um, this, there's two reasons for this. The first reason is that there is a war. Remember last week, there is a war being waged against our souls. And the passions of our flesh make us vulnerable to the attacks of our enemies. Remember, three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So Peter was reminding us, look, you've got a war raging. You've got three enemies of your soul. And so you have to be aware of how important it is for you to live a holy life that honors Christ. But the second reason he told us last week was that he says people are watching you. And when we live holy lives, we actually give unbelievers no fuel for their fire against God. In fact, he told us that our good deeds may in fact glorify, cause the unbelievers to glorify God one day. Well, now Peter is switching gears and he's talking about the relationship between church and state. So he's talking about what's the relationship now between the church and the governing authorities. And Peter's going to explain how believers who are now free in Christ and who actually only ultimately answer to the one greatest authority, God himself, how believers are to engage with honor and respect for governmental systems and human leaders. How do we do this? So first, it's important that we understand this passage in its proper historical context before we try to apply it to our contemporary lives. Remember, okay, Peter, we learned in the first part of Peter, he is writing to believers who have fled Rome because of, because of Nero's persecution. So they're out in these various places in Asia Minor, and um, they are going and planting churches in these communities, which we looked at in chapter 1. Now, the, the governing authorities in these places throughout Asia Minor are really afraid about these new Christians coming in and causing rebellion or causing upset. Um, they're worried that they're going to lead a revolt and they're going to actually disrupt their communities. And so also the recipients of these, this letter, these people who have found this newfound freedom in Christ, 
there's potential for them to think that now they actually didn't have to adhere to any of society's rules because they were free in Christ. So he's really trying to speak to them and give them a perspective and to warn them about how others will be anticipating their planting in their communities and the fears that they would have that they would be disrupting their their governmental systems. So Peter's telling them very specifically. He's saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, living as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So notice that Peter begins with this word, be subject, which is the same word for submit. And so before we go on to talk about anything else, I want us to wrap our minds around this word because as we go through the next few lessons, this um, is going to be a theme that we're going to talk about in context with other kinds of relationships, like marriage, which we're going to talk about next week. Now, the Greek word for submit is hypotasso. And so hypo means under, and tasso means to order, place, or appoint. So the idea is to order oneself under or to live under an order of government. That's what he's saying. So hypotasso, submit, live under an order, in this case of government. Now, God has ordained the structure of of human government. He has ordained the role of leadership. He has ordained the system of laws and order and justice. And he's done that for society's good. Now go back to, for example, the nation of Israel. God ordained them to be a nation. He called them out to be a people. He gave them leaders like Moses and Aaron and then the 70 elders. He gave them laws by which they were to live by. He gave them a justice system. He created order so that they could live in harmony as a people group and they could glorify him as they followed this order that he had ordained. Human institutions are actually God's design. Now we know that when nations don't have sound governments or competent leaders, people suffer all kinds of injustices and they lack proper care and protection. Um, Even This is going to be hard to hear. Even bad governments are better than no government. Because without human institutions, there is total chaos and evil runs rampant. Um, But while the structure of human government and the positions of human authority are ordained by God, this won't be a surprise to you, not all laws and not all leaders are good. Okay? Human government and human positions of leadership are ordained by God but not all laws and not all leaders are good. And so while Peter encourages Christians to respect their governments and respect their leaders, they were never to disobey God in the process. If we look at Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles make it really clear. He says, we must obey God rather than men. And there are actually times when it was good to disobey human laws in order to submit to God as the highest authority. There's an example in Scripture in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John were charged by the Jewish leaders to not speak of Jesus and to not teach the gospel. And they actually openly defied that mandate. In chapter 4 verse 18, it says, So they, the leaders, 
called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And in this case, Peter, people praised God. for They praised God for John and Peter's boldness, and they praised God for God's protection over them. In verse 21, it says, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Now, remember at the time that Peter is writing this, Nero is the emperor, and he is bad. He is clearly insane, and yet Peter is exhorting the believers to do good under the umbrella of his leadership. Why does Peter say this? Well, he says it for God's sake, for the Lord's sake. Because when followers of Christ respect authority, we actually give glory to God for our lives. The good news of the gospel and the testimony of our lives isn't tainted by the rebellion and the anger that we sometimes feel towards government when we respect authority and we glorify God with our lives. Now, honestly, I have to say that election years are so hard for me to be on Facebook. Anybody suffer from this? Facebook is a place where people express a lot of emotion during election years. And that emotion comes out about the government and about leaders and about candidates. And it's heated. And people within the Christian community have really varied ideas on what they think and what they believe. And I think maybe everybody forgets that God is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. How often, though, is God's fame tarnished when Christians publicly rant and rave about politics and then speak disparagingly about people who hold national offices? Because regardless of how national leaders behave, we as believers need to be above reproach in our conduct because we answer to God, who's the highest authority of all, and he says that we're to honor our leaders and the positions of leadership that they hold. And Peter reminds us that people are watching our lives, and they may eventually actually praise God for our holy conduct. In fact, he says that our good deeds can actually put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And this word silence in the Greek, it means to muzzle. Think of putting a muzzle on a dog so he can't bark or bite. That's what happens when we honor God in our response to our our human systems of leadership and our um, people watching us do that. Now, surely the people in out in the communities where these unbelievers are, or these believers are, are living and planting churches, surely people are watching them, and they're going, they're watching to see how they're living out the reality of their faith, knowing that they fled from oppression from Rome, and knowing they're coming out to plant churches and to be Christians living in the midst of these new communities. And these governing leaders, they, historians say that they were really, really scared because these Christians who were moving out into their communities were professing to, to serve another king. And they were uh, considered to be like a religious sect or they, people feared that they were going to try to overthrow the government. 
And so these rumors were circulating. So it was doubly important that these believers did good and lived above reproach in their communities. And by doing this, their accusers would be silenced and actually more likely seen to be fearful fools because all of their fears would be put to rest as they saw these Christians move in and be good citizens and be honorable and respectful, even though they're free in Christ. So Peter is reminding us that order glorifies God and it protects people. And even though Nero was crazy, Christians were not to rebel against Rome because Roman law was the only active restraint against lawlessness. And that was protection for everyone. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Well, we actually don't have a political system that allows for a tyrannical leader like Nero. Praise God. We don't have a system because the way our system works, the president's hands are tied by the people because the people are the ones we elect representatives to the House and the Senate. And so they represent our views and they are a a constraint around what a president can do. And one way that we can honor our government is to study political candidates and to study issues and to vote responsibly. I think sometimes we're tempted to think that our our voice is so small that it doesn't really matter. And it does. In fact, this freedom that we have as women to vote was fought for by our forefathers. There was a time when women couldn't vote. And so we should take this freedom very, very much to heart and cherish the opportunity that we have to study and to learn and to know and and to vote. And thankfully, we can also use our voices to legally protest laws that defy biblical principles. You know, in Peter's day, people were executed for non-submission to authorities. So we live under a very different governmental system. In Peter's day, if you spoke out against the government, you were killed. In our day, we actually have freedom, freedom of speech, to speak out, to make our our voices known, to um, be proponents of biblical values, and to vote responsibly. The way that we submit or to live under in our temporary context is very, very different than the way that Peter and the, the young believers at that time were able to live. We actually, we, we are able to um, respect our leaders and the offices we hold, they hold, and we aren't fearful of being put to death if we have a different view about things. In fact, think about this. Many Christians over the years have done good for society by engaging in legal protests. We can protest legally. Think about, like I said, suffrage movement, where people protested and women were able to to be allowed to vote. Think about the people who fought to remove laws that fostered racial inequality and in support of civil rights. These were people who who protested um, laws in a way that created movement and change for America. Both of these movements actually had an element of civil disobedience to them, but they were good for society. Today, many Christians are protesting legalized abortion. And I I imagine Peter would say, go for it. But he would say, be holy in your conduct and maintain order in your protests. Um, He would not affirm blowing up abortion clinics or attacking uh, medical personnel who come out of those clinics. You know, that would do just the opposite for God's reputation in society. It's possible today in our culture to speak up and to rally for change without breaking laws, without dishonoring governmental systems and institutions, and without defaming the name of Christ. 
So the truth is that our freedom in Christ enables us to do good for God's sake. We have a freedom in Christ that enables us to do good for God's sake. We are able to be good citizens who honor our government while also advocating for biblical principles. So let me ask you just to think about this for a minute. How can we honor and respect our government even when we disagree? What does that look like? How can we have disagreement and yet still be honoring and respectful to the offices, to the people, to the system? How can we express our views without raging against those who see things differently? How do we do that? How do we express our views? Do we ask questions of people who think differently than we do and and consider different points of view? Or do we just rage? Do we just express a lot of anger because we're frustrated? I think our world needs to see Christ followers, Christian men and women living as good citizens, not inflamed about politics, but also not apathetic about politics. You know, we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Um, We want to actively champion biblical ideals through legal channels, using our voices in a God-honoring way. We, want, we do the best good when we're able to bring the good news of the gospel to bear upon our world. If we diminish our testimony for Christ in an attempt to do good by rebelling against authorities or being lawless or blasting leaders or inciting chaos, the end will not justify the means. And in fact, many people, as they have over the years, will just turn away from God and they'll um, see our actions as being hypocritical. So let me ask you, do you need to change the way that you engage with political ideals and leaders? Do you need to change the way you engage with those things? How might you respect the office even if you don't respect the officer? And honestly, this passage really convicted me about something in my own life because I feel challenged to be less apathetic about politics and more engaged in knowing the people and the issues that I vote. I vote But sometimes I feel so apathetic, partly because I'm a pastor, and as a pastor, I am never, ever, ever allowed to say anything about what I think politically. It's part of how we protect our tax code as being a religious nonprofit. Um, So I never speak ever. I never speak privately or publicly about what I think about politics. I think that has probably put in me a bit of apathy, I don't take it as seriously as I probably should. And one of the things that Peter's been challenging me about is that I, I don't want to be so disconnected. I think it's important to, for me to, to know more, to study more, to be more educated on the issues, to vote more responsibly, um, to understand that my freedom in Christ allows me to be thoughtful and investigative about the issues at hand. But what about you? What about this These words from Peter has maybe challenged how you will engage. Guess what? We are in an election year. We're going to have lots of opportunity over the next few months to practice these things. How do we honor the system? How do we honor the position? How do we speak honorably about people, even when we disagree? But how are we thoughtful and and smart and investigative about the things that we can be so that we vote? We use this voice that had been fought for hundreds of years ago for us to use to, to... to speak out. Well, next, Peter challenges us to do good for our own sake. 
Now, this next section is especially challenging for us to grasp because we don't understand the concept of slavery in the first century. When we hear the words slave and master, we immediately think of slavery in the New World, which was about 16 to 1800 years later. But that's all we can think of when we think of the words slave and master. Remember, if you remember back in your history classes, slavery began in the 16th century when Europeans from the American colonies went to Africa, captured African people, and brought them to the colonies to be their labor force. And this continued until 1865 when slavery was officially abolished by the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Of course, we know the repercussions of slavery continued on for many years afterwards and still today are felt in the South, in the United States. But for me, I'll never forget the 1977 miniseries, Roots. How many of you watched Roots? This was my first exposure to the atrocity of slavery. I had not really understood it until I saw this miniseries. And honestly, this is what comes to my mind every time I think of slaves and masters. Does this is what comes to your mind too when you read this in Scripture? Okay, erase that picture. That is not what slavery was like in the first century. This is not what it was like in Rome. Again, we have to know the historical context before we begin to be, apply some of these things to our contemporary lives. So in first century Rome, about a third of the population of Rome was considered slave population. A third. One in every three people. That's a lot. It was the backbone of their labor force. Some people were born into slavery because their moms were servants, but most people um, volunteered or accepted temporary positions to be considered servants or slaves. Slaves actually were provided work so that they could have financial freedom. It was a way to wipe out debt. It was a way to gain some money. It was a way to not be homeless. If you got a job as a slave, um, you agreed to work for a period of time, and you received benefit from that. Slavery provided good, stable work and could increase a person's status in life. Even, for example, if you were a slave and you got to work in a household of an elite member of society, you became an elite member of society too. A slave's social status was attached to his master's. So it was actually really good to get in. You could up your status by who you worked for. Um, and not all slaves did manual labor. Slaves were doctors and teachers and accountants and secretaries and even sea captains. So it wasn't digging ditches like we imagine in the New World kind of slavery. Here's what a Greco-Roman historian t taught about slavery in his book. He says, Central features that distinguish first century slavery from that of later practiced in the New World are the following. Racial features played no role. Education was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were better educated than their owners and enhanced a slave's value. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. No laws prohibit public assembly of slaves, and perhaps above all, the majority of urban and domesticated slaves could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by the age of 30. Okay, that's first century slavery in Rome. So put that image into your mind. 
as now we read what Peter has to say as he exhorts believers about holy living by addressing those who are serving under the authority of human masters. He says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now imagine that you are serving someone who is kind and generous. That would be delightful, wouldn't it? But there were masters who were cruel and punishing. And he's saying that if if the servant acts in rebellion in that situation, it's not only going to hurt him by ruining his chances for financial freedom, but it's actually going to tarnish the whole testimony of the gospel. Because after all, Jesus is the shining example of one who served faithfully even though he was treated unjustly. And God's grace is sufficient to meet the needs of those who suffer for doing good. He goes on to say this, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We know that if people are, are mean to us, we want to fight back. And we want to demand our rights when we're mistreated. But he's reminding us that God's grace can actually enable a person to stay in place and to allow God to fight on our behalf. Now he's saying, of course, if a person is suffering because they've actually sinned, because they've, they've done something wrong, well then that's just paying the consequences. But he's saying... If, if a person suffers for doing good, he's saying, God sees, God knows, God understands his or her pain. And Peter points us to Jesus, who is the ultimate example of, of someone suffering for doing good. Think of all that Jesus endured to secure our salvation. Here's just a few things that come from Scripture. We know that he felt the pain of betrayal when his own people didn't believe in him. We just studied James. Think of how he felt all those years when his own brother did not believe in him. He endured an unfair trial by the religious leaders. There was no fairness about that trial. It was, they were determined that they were going to persecute him. We're looking for every which way to do it. He, list, he had to listen in that trial to the accusation of people who came and gave false witness against him. He suffered beatings and mockery by the, by the Roman soldiers. He was flogged mercilessly. He experienced excruciating pain in the process of dying via crucifixion. He had to listen to the insults of bystanders as he was suffering on the cross. And he endured a time of separation from God the Father and God the Spirit as he was dying for our sins. And Jesus taught his disciples that that those who follow in his footsteps and bear his name in this world, would also suffer. In fact, at the Last Supper, he warned his disciples. He said, "Um, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in Mark 8, 34, he said, "Um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So it's, it's no surprise then, knowing how much Jesus suffered, that Peter now reaches back to the Old Testament to the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and brings out some of that imagery to help 
us understand, God's servants, how we can respond by doing good and not retaliate even when we have or when they had harsh masters. And Jesus meets us he's with his grace as we endure some of the same kinds of sufferings that he did. And listen to the language that he uses from Isaiah as he points to Jesus as and his perfect response to the suffering of the cross. Verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So beautiful. So how do we apply Peter's instructions then to our contemporary context? Well, the most similar relationship that we have in our contemporary culture is the employer-employee relationship. And truly, there are many employees, maybe you have experienced this as well, who are overworked, verbally abused, cheated on your wages, or sometimes even physically abused. We know that the Me Too movement has brought a lot of that to light, what kind of physical abuse goes on sometimes in the market. But the difference is that we live in a free market economy, and people in our culture enter into at-will employment. We aren't, we aren't committed without recourse to a long period of servitude with someone who has authority over us. We can enter into a job market and we can exit a job market. And we have options that the first century servants or slaves did not enjoy. But there still is a principle that we can apply in whatever dynamic we find ourselves in in the workplace, and that is we can honor God by keeping our eyes on him and seek to be a blessing to others in our workplaces. We can trust that God sees and he knows if there's injustice that you're enduring, and he will give you his grace to either suffer patiently for a time, like Jesus, or his grace to leave a place of employment and to find another place to work. There are times when it's good and right to assert your your rights and to fight for fair treatment, and then there are other times when it's good to stay on the path and endure some suffering and follow in Jesus' footsteps in that way. The reality is that suffering is a part of life as a Christ follower, and it's unavoidable. And by God's grace, he can use our suffering for our good and for his glory. And remember, we've talked about this, nothing is ever wasted with God. So we need discernment. As James told us, we need wisdom. We don't always know. There's not a formula. It takes discernment to know when it's right to stay and when it's right to go. But we live in a different context because we have freedom. We can make choices. We work at will uh, for our employers. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean that you should remain a passive victim of abuse. This is not the first century where people had no options. Um, There you have people and services who can help you extricate yourself from an abusive employer. You are free to choose to leave if you are able to do so. The most important thing that I think Peter would say to us is that don't retaliate. It will make matters worse. The most important thing you can do is get to a safe place and get help. And thankfully, we live in a world where help is available 
for those of us who are at in at-will employment situations. Now, saying that also reminds me that we have a slave market in our society today, and it's called sex trafficking. And it reminds me that there is a world underground in our culture where there are young people who are serving against their will under slave masters and are being exploited and mistreated, and they don't feel like they have a way out. And so we need to pray for them because this is happening in our world, and we need to pray for these young people to be extricated, to be set free from this oppression. But what I want us to know is that God sees us and he knows when we suffer for Christ's sake. He sees us and he knows when we suffer for Christ's sake. Are you suffering in a relationship with an employer or someone who has power over you in the workplace? Will you pray about how you can respond in a way that honors Christ? If you are tempted to retaliate in that situation, will you remember Jesus' example and pray to know what the next steps should be, asking God for wisdom, whether you should leave or whether you should remain in place. And thank God that we live in a different culture than Peter's early recipients of this lesson lived. We don't live in the same culture. We actually have choices. We have legal aid. We have um, people who can help. Are you being mistreated or ostracized at your workplace for your faith? Remember that people are looking at you. They're watching you. They're looking for any reason possible to denounce God by something you do or something you say. So how might your response um, win others to Christ? I love what 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And that verse makes me wonder how often we extricate ourselves so quickly from painful situations. You know, we're very quick when something becomes difficult to take ourselves out instead of remaining in and understanding that God may be working on our character. He may be teaching us patience. He may be giving us a testimony. He may be working in some of these hard places where we're so dependent on him to to be steadfast. And too often, maybe we do take ourselves out and try to, and we, ha- we don't get to learn the lessons that he would have for us if we remained. Again, not in an abusive situation, but the reality is work is toil. It's hard. And no matter what, where you are and what you're, what you're doing, you know that it's, it's challenging. So Peter challenges us to press on in doing good whatever difficulty we find ourselves in so that we can bring honor to God and experience his grace. Now, Martin Luther King, we know, suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. In fact, in fighting the injustices of racism, he stirred up a lot of enemies, and eventually that cost him his life. But listen to what he said before he died. This is what he said about doing good according to God's will before he died. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. Wow. Come what may. We know how that story ended. So doing good in hard situations brings honor to God, and it reveals God's grace. Let's stand and pray about that for ourselves, shall we?
Father, we come before you and just want to ask that you would help us to live holy lives, to reflect you in the places where you've planted us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to glorify you as we engage with politics and government, as we go through this election year, as we have opportunities to share our views and to discuss our ideals and to make decisions. I pray that we would glorify and honor you most of all. Help us, Lord, to be wise and to know that people are watching. Let us be above reproach so that we could give you honor and in some cases people would be silenced in their accusations against you because of how we respond in challenging circumstances. And Lord, for all of us who are in situations where we have someone leading us in our job, bosses, leaders, whoever those people might be, Lord, teach us how to to serve in such a way that honors you. Give us wisdom to know when it's good to stay in a hard place and when it's important to leave. Lord, may we hear only from you as we make these decisions. And for anyone who's being abused or who's being taken advantage of in ways that are, that are undignified, I pray that there would be a way of escape, that, that there would be an, a, a strong conclusion and, and righteous justice in those situations. But help us, Lord, to respond in ways that are not reviling or retaliating or vengeful, but that are honoring to you, even in the hardest places. Lord, we just need your help. These are hard, challenging words, and we want to know how to apply them into the context in which we're living. And so would you help us? Give us your wisdom. And help guide us each step of the way. We ask this in the name and power of Jesus. Amen.